everyone. Welcome to season two of Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and professionals in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jennifer Vilwalk, practicing rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, also serving as an associate professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the University of Kansas Medical Center. She also serves as the section chief for otolaryngology at the Kansas City VA Hospital. She earned her medical degree from Michigan State University and then went on to complete her residency at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse, New York, followed by a fellowship in rhinology and skull-based surgery at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Nationally, she serves on the Rhinology and Allergy Education Committee and the Board of Governors for the Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. Dr. Vilwak, thank you for joining me today. Thrilled to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Vilwak, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation on Sundays with Saima. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So to start out, can you tell us about your path to otolaryngology? Yeah, absolutely. So my path to otolaryngology was not super straightforward. Um, one of my girlfriends, who's also an otolaryngologist, uh, introduced me to the term primary care lost soul. And so <laughs> she used that to describe herself because she, similar to me in her early years of medical school, really thought that she was going to go into primary care. And that was also, you know, my thought process. I really liked the aspects of family medicine where, you know, you're taking care of people across the spectrum of their entire lives. You get to know your patients and have meaningful relationships with them. And then all of that changed. Not that I don't still care about those things, but when I did my surgery rotation, it was kind of like a, a wake up call for me in terms of, I was like, oh, this, this is what I have to do. Mm -hmm. And I had my surgery rotation at the end of my third year of medical school. So a little bit late in the game, I guess, compared to some others. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the way that I kind of really knew it was for me is that I would rather have been, you know, at the hospital from, you know, four or 5 a.m. until whenever the day was done doing those types of things than, you know, a shorter day doing something else. And then as I learned more about otolaryngology and all of the different medical as well as surgical management options that we have, and, you know, we do truly follow a lot of our patients longitudinally, um, it really kind of ticked all the primary care boxes that my heart was initially drawn to in a surgical field that I also loved. Yeah, it's great. Primary care lost soul. I like that. Mm -hmm. So um, you found the balance between primary care management in the clinic and operative experiences in otolaryngology. Um, how does rhinology um, kind of meet all of those criteria for your long-term career? Yeah. So rhinology, I think, is a very interesting field because there are certainly some pathologies where you get a lot of instant gratification, right? Like someone with nasal obstruction because they have huge turbinates and their septum is super deviated. You know, you can be like, aha, I'm going to fix that surgically. And then, you know, they're better and they proceed happily with their lives. Um, but then certainly there's other folks, you know, those with skull-based tumors, those that have chronic sinusitis with polyps, you know, where we know it's going to be kind of a lifelong process 
with them and we're going to need to periodically see them and get to know them. And so in that way, I think you get the best of both worlds, right? You get the instant gratification for those that have relatively simple things that you can help them with. And then on the other side of that spectrum, you do have folks that have chronic concerns that need someone, you know, who can be with them throughout that whole process. Right. That sounds so fulfilling to be able to have that range of practice and be able to do uh, hands-on work plus the outpatient side. Um, How does research kind of add to your career fulfillment and where do you see it kind of taking you in your career? Yeah. So stop me if I get too much on my research soapbox because (laughs) I love it. (laughs) No, please go ahead. We love to hear it. (laughs) So my... My opinion and my belief is that research really does fit well into clinical practice. And the reason for that is my personal approach is that I pursue research projects about things that either I don't understand or that really bother me about how things are done currently. And, you know, one example is the work that my team is doing in olfaction or sense of smell. And, you know, there's been a ton of interest because of COVID and we all know that olfactory dysfunction can be a first, it can be the most severe, it can be a lingering symptom. Um, But we started doing this work several years ago, and my initial interest was specific for those that had nasal polyposis, because we know that as the inflammatory burden rises, sense of smell might be the first thing to go. And it didn't make sense to me that we weren't actively following patients' sense of smell, right? And Mm -hmm. as I learned more about it and kind of the options that were available, it became clear that one of the reasons was likely because the, t- the existing tests were not very accessible and they're kind of expensive. And so, you know, it, it's hard to ask your patient to do, you know, a one-time use test once a week to track their sense of smell that costs them 30 bucks. You know, it seems like for a lot of folks, maybe that's not a huge expense, but I mean, there's, you know, there's folks that, you know, have trouble affording a number of different things. And so because of that, we kind of embarked on this now several years long odyssey to create a more um, cost effective, reusable and relatively cheap test of olfactory dysfunction. And we've spent the past several years validating it in a number of different contexts to kind of, you know, meet that gap or fill that gap. And then another example is our work in pain assessment. Personally, it really bugs me. Like when you get called in the middle of the night because, you know, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so has a pain level of eight out of 10. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what are they able to do? Are they trying to like do something? Are they just writhing in bed? There's mm-hmm. so much nuance within pain assessment. And I think it's my personal opinion that one of the reasons why we struggle to effectively treat pain is because we're using these unidimensional metrics that don't really reflect what's Mm -hmm. going on for the patient, what they want to do, what their priorities are, what is their pain preventing them from doing. And so we've embarked on a journey there to create a different, more functionally based pain scale to try and, and meet that need. And so it's one of those, yeah, just think of the things that bother you or don't make sense. (laughs) And literally any of those things can be a legitimate kind of research project going forward. Yeah, that's great. Um, Kind of following your curiosity and getting to the answers to the questions that are bothering you. That's a really interesting approach to take. And um, I think especially with the sense of smell, olfaction, it's very interesting and a hot topic these days with COVID, like you mentioned. And I wonder if the methods that you're validating will help us 
in the future to perform better cranial nerve exams and be actually be able to test smell. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very, I could talk literally for hours on that topic, <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it's just a good example of, you know, as we think about research and the next steps in medicine, so often I think we're thinking about like these very targeted individualized based on your own molecular or genomic and proteomic signature. And there's a space for those things too. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the research that I do is kind of in the realm of what are kind of simple cost-effective things that we know we should be doing now based on the existing evidence that we're not, you know, and how do we kind of bridge that gap? Yeah, absolutely. I also think the pain um, research that you're doing is very interesting um, because it takes the subjectiveness a little bit out of it and makes it a little bit more objective, which is really interesting. And I also wonder how that would have an impact on um, kind of like the pain management using opioids and other pain uh, treatments. Yep, exactly. That's exactly what we're studying. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, some of your research is also in personality-based mentorship, right? Can you touch mm -hmm. on that as well? Yeah, so that was um, a project that we got some grant funding from um, our institution to study the impact of having access to personality assessments that are psychometrically validated and using those to enhance um, mentoring relationships. And the baseline premise there is that all of us kind of have the things, you know, that make us who we are and our baseline tendencies, what are our strengths that are good when leveraged and potentially counterproductive when over leveraged? And then what are the things that we value? And the intent um, at the medical student level was to have the students um, take these assessments and the company that we use, the assessments would generate a narrative report. And so for example, one of the characteristics or uh, attributes is interpersonal sensitivity. Mm -hmm. I score very low in interpersonal <laughs> sensitivity. And so, you know, I need to be aware of that because what that means for me is that, you know, for example, I suspect that a lot of my statistician um, colleagues also score low, not to stereotype them, but just from what I've observed um, and how meetings with them go. And so when you have two people that score low on interpersonal sensitivity, what that means is that we can both just like get right down to business. So like we start a Zoom meeting, there's no like, hello, I'm so-and-so and how are you and blah, blah, blah. No, it's just like, all right, what's the data? What are we missing? What stats don't look right? The end, right? But for people that have that as more of a core component, you know, they would perceive that to be very rude, right? right? Like they need kind of that interpersonal sensitivity, that building of relationship before they get down to business. Mm -hmm. So I need to know that because you know, it doesn't take a lot of extra effort for me to start off an email with, you know, I hope you're having a great day or, you know, something of that nature. Right. And it just kind of softens the message. Mm -hmm. And if I'm sending that to a person who's like me, you know, we read that and we're like, okay, great. Now let's get down to business. Mm -hmm. But if I don't put that messaging in and someone does value, you know, more of that, um, communication about other things before getting down to business, they might not want to work with me. Yeah. Right. Not because not because we're not we wouldn't be a good fit, but because I kind of am off putting in my directness, depending right. on how you're wired. And so you could see you could extrapolate then to how that might interact, how that might impact your interactions with, you know, other members of the care team. Right. right? Who might perceive you as rude and maybe you find yourself getting written up because, mm. you know, they they don't like the way that you present yourself. So having that knowledge 
um, ahead of time can be helpful. Mm-hmm. That is a big challenge, though, to kind of see within yourself what others might perceive as rude. Um, but hopefully those tests that you're helping with, um, with your personality-based mentorship can help medical students to kind of see that, that weakness. And I think that's the perfect time to start because this is just the beginning of a very long career for us. Yeah. Yeah. And what we found too, is that, you know, because there's so much now that's packed in the medical school curriculum, even within the realm of like mentoring and coaching, Um, A lot of the students did not actually use that feedback on their assessments kind of with their faculty coach, Mm -hmm. but they almost universally still found it to be helpful in terms of just having that knowledge for themselves, even if they didn't want to process it with somebody else. Um, So I guess you could you could say that the project was a failure, but also maybe a success. (laughs) Well, I think knowledge is power. So the more knowledge you have about yourself whether it's now or down the line, I think you'll eventually be able to recognize that within yourself. Yeah. So I really appreciate that work. And I think you also gave a TED talk about the importance of stories and building your own personal life experiences. Can you tell us what um, prompted you to share these stories and what you did to facilitate those conversations about wellness in medical schools? Yeah, I think that wellness is something that's talked about a lot, but it's kind of like this very nebulous thing, or it's kind of a one size fits all, right? Just meditate and do yoga and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that the reason for that is because those are the very easy aspects of the conversation to have. But I think that we all also recognize that there's a lot going on under the surface. And so often in medical school, Um, What I found was that there was intense pressure to really have this facade, right? Of like, Mm -hmm. I know what's going on. I'm not totally lost. I got it together. Right. And I think that facade really detracts from our ability to make and maintain the genuine connections that we need between between ourselves Mm -hmm. so that we can feel supported, so that we can feel like we're part of a meaningful community. Right. And the kind of the moment where it became most apparent to me was when, you know, for a number of months, I was like, I am just like tired. (laughs) I'm like, you know, as an academic otolaryngologist, there's all these meetings to go to and you're supposed to like give all these presentations and pretend like that, you know, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I was at this um, meeting and I sat down at a table with uh, another otolaryngologist who I, you know, I peripherally knew her, but nothing, you know, nothing significant. Right. And she asked me, oh, how's the meeting going for you? Just like the most standard question (laughs) ever at these meetings. And usually the response is something along the lines of, oh, it's great. I'm learning so much. And Mm -hmm. isn't otolaryngology so wonderful? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Um, But this time, instead of saying like the templated response that we all give, Mm -hmm. I just took a deep breath and I told her, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here, but I'm also really tired and I'm missing my family because I have been gone for the last three consecutive weekends. Mm-hmm. And she kind of took a pause and I was like, oh no, <laughs> what's going to happen? But when she responded, she just looked me in the eyes and she said, me too. Right. And then we actually got to have a real conversation, which of course included the stuff that we were learning, but it, you know, it also allowed us to connect more. And I think both of us to really 
feel seen. And, right. you know, maybe that's what I needed in that moment, right? That yeah. I'm not alone. Every aspect of life is not easy, nor mm-hmm. should it be. And also like, why are we pretending this? Right. Yeah. And- that facade is really an interesting aspect of medicine. And it's kind of unfortunate that we see vulnerability as weakness, but I mean, like that moment you talk about, it's so rare that you will actually have people talk about their feelings honestly, because we think we have to be strong for our patients and for the people around us. And, you know, that weakness is seen as incompetence, but really it's, it's just a part of humanity. Like that's who we are and we have to see ourselves in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the flip side of that coin is, I think is what we see way too often in medicine where we make our suffering, our badge of honor, you know, and at med school, what that looks like is, oh, you studied eight hours for that test. Let me tell you about how I studied 10 and I missed my, you know, my dad's birthday and I didn't go to my cousin's wedding. And you're like, why are we making it about who can suffer the worst? Like that's not winning. Right. Mm-hmm. But if we don't know how to have these conversations and maintain our humanity, it's almost like we have to do something to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So we compete um, to suffer the most. And I think that's a completely distracting dialogue, but it very much is an entrenched part of the culture of medicine. Right. Right. Well, I am so honored to be having you here to talk about this work that you've been doing. Um, You received an award, the Rainbow Award for this work as well, which is um, talking about the characteristics that future physicians hope to possess one day. And it's one of the School of Medicine's highest honors. So coming from that perspective, can you tell us a little bit of the advice you have for students who are potentially looking into otolaryngology or applying? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to give give yourself the space to explore when you're very early in your medical training. So be open. You know, I certainly there's plenty of folks that enter medical school and they've known since they were four years old that they needed to be an otolaryngologist. That's totally fine. But I would recommend, please keep your mind open because you might be like me where you had this idea, you know, of what things were going to look like. And then that shifted, you know, when you had some sort of, you know, moment that that directed you down another path. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to stay open to those moments as opposed to being very rigid in your kind of built up fantasy life that you've been constructing for a long time. Um, Having come to the field of otolaryngology relatively late, you know, I think another thing that's important is to think about all of the things that you've done in your life and in your training up to that point, and how can they be relevant to this new field? You know, if you are, if you're also discovering ENT late, um, or, you know, if you have a lot of, let's say research, but it's not ENT related, there's shared skill sets. And I think, you know, for me, I'm interested in what students are able to do and what they want to learn to do and the aspects of themselves that they want to build. Right. So even if all of your research was in, I don't know, orthopedics or, you know, family medicine, what have you, you know, do you know how to do an IRB? You know, do you know how to consent patients? Do you have any statistical skills? All of those things are transferable, even if the initial project wasn't an ENT. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amount of kind of like checking the boxes, right, that you have to do. Mm -hmm. But what really excites us when we're talking with students is tell me about the things that you've done and the aspects of them that really excite you. 
Mm-hmm. Like, what are you curious about exploring more? Yeah. And, and, you know, what kind of curiosity and creativity do you bring to the table? Because those are, those are the unique aspects of you. Like anyone can be taught how to do statistics mm-hmm. and almost anyone can be taught how to do surgery. Right. But what do you bring that's unique and that you're passionate about and that will sustain you throughout your career? That's what I want to talk to you about. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, just being yourself and being flexible at the beginning is really important and creating your own storyline to kind of fit into whatever you're applying to is really an, a great approach to getting successful in whatever field you choose to enter. And be careful about how you define success mm-hmm. and try and stay flexible with that definition as well. Like I would, I would consider myself to be a successful individual now, but the things that I'm doing and have done are very different than what 10 years ago me would have termed successful. So I think having that amount of grace and flexibility for yourself is very important throughout the years too. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Vilwak. We discussed um, your primary care lost soul, how you ended up in otolaryngology and eventually rhinology, some of your fascinating research interests and getting to the bottom of those questions that really bug you. And then the TED talk that you gave relating to your own personal experiences and how to maintain that vulnerability to create connection and wellness in the medical field. I really appreciate all of your time today, and I look forward to sharing this with my colleagues. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for the listeners to making it to the end of this episode of Sundays with Saima. Catch us next week for the next episode.